But we did pray over and desire now to worship the Lord through the study of his word. So I'll ask you to grab your Bible or phone or whatever you're using today. Let's go to the epistle of 1 John and to chapter 5 this morning. 1 John chapter 5, near the very end of your Bible. And if you need one today, you need a Bible, you got out of the house without yours, just raise your hand. We'd be glad to share a copy of the word. There is a note page in your bulletin. Grab that if you would and have that handy because it'll definitely be of help today. And as you could tell by my invitation to join me in chapter 5, we are rounding the final turn and we are in the home stretch now of our study of 1 John. We start the the last chapter of this epistle, chapter 5 today. And John continues to do today what he set out to do from the very beginning. And that is instruct, encourage, and protect Christians who have been confused and unsettled by false teachers proclaiming that there is a new and better way to get to God. This new way presented a a distorted Jesus who really wasn't God at all. It promoted a live-any-way-you-want lifestyle. God doesn't really care how you live. He isn't bothered by sin. That was the teaching of the day. And it blew off with loveless indifference anyone who didn't go along with this new teaching. And so John confronts this dangerous threat as a pastor of several churches in the late first century. He confronts this this threat and he helps these confused followers of Jesus to know with an absolute certainty that they have eternal life and a forever home with God in heaven. He wrote to help define for them what it means to be a real Christian. And here's how this looks and here's how it sounds in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 5, which is where we're going to be today. And John pretty much summarizes the content of the entire letter in these five verses. So if you haven't been with us in our series, uh, you picked a great morning to join us at IBC because you basically get the whole book in these five verses. He writes, Holy Spirit directed these words. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And Holy Spirit, open our eyes and our hearts. Amen and amen. Now, last time we were together, last Sunday, I mentioned that Lisa and I were able to be with our daughter and our son-in-law recently, two weeks ago, when they announced that they were going to be having we knew they were going to have another baby, their second child, but nobody knew what the sex was except them. But they were going to announce this at a special gathering, and we were able to be a part of that, and we learned that we were going to have a little baby girl. They were going to have a little baby girl, a new grandbaby for us in June. Lisa's greatly relieved that we're not having a little baby girl. <laughs> So it was a great time for all of us as we celebrated this, this thought of a little girl coming and, and we were just giving thanks to the Lord. 
But this got me thinking about how different things are today for new parents than when Lisa and I were beginning our family some 30, 31 years ago. In many ways, uh, parenting today is different due in large part to the amazing technology that is out there. In particular, the technology that enables mom and dad to keep an eye on their children, especially at night. For those of us who haven't parented in the last few decades, man, there is a, there is a whole industry of products that are, I guess they're, I would just say they are for parental electronic surveillance. That's what it is. For example, did you know there is this monitoring device that you can place under a baby's mattress and it senses movement through the mattress? And and kicks or flailing arms, man, that is easy for this particular device. But this thing is so sensitive that it actually detects the baby's breathing. And if there's no movement for more than 10 seconds, it sounds an alarm on this remote that is located wherever the parent is at. And so if there's no movement, of course, the parents come running because no movement means perhaps something terrible has gone on. Maybe, maybe something terrible has, has happened, and so they come running. And then there's this video baby monitor. Now, this is pretty cool. You mount the camera above the crib, and it looks down on the baby. And it also has an audio monitoring feature. It's like sitting in the room as it transmits these full-color images and sounds to a, a handheld screen or even to your phone. It can zoom. It can pan from side to side. And at night, uh, when, it's, when, it, when it's dark, this is, this is where this instrument really shines because it has infrared night vision. And so it can even see in the dark. And you've got your eyes on your baby in the dark. You can push a button. You can talk to the baby. You can push another button and play music for it. It even tells the temperature in the room. The only thing it doesn't do is change the diaper. But I'm guessing that that's probably in development right now. So So at any moment, day or night, mom and dad are monitoring their baby's status. That wasn't the way it was when I was becoming a parent. They have this movement monitor. They have audio, video, temperature. They have infrared seal, team six kind of night vision. This child is being watched from above and from below and from all around. And again, I would ask you, what is it that mom and dad are monitoring? What are they constantly watching and listening for? What? Life. Life. They are looking for life, for signs of life, sound, movement, breathing. And the moment that there is the absence of any of that, for more than 10 seconds, alarms go off and somebody is running to the room. First John is all about looking for life. It is, it is the one who says, I am a Christian. Are they evidencing the signs of real spiritual life and transformation? John has been showing us now for four chapters how to look for signs of life, how to know that we are spiritually alive. 
Is there spiritual movement in my life? Is there spiritual movement in your life? Are we alive today? Are we spiritually breathing? Are we active? Are we moving? Are we expressing in action and in words our faith? If there's no movement, if there's no breathing, if there's no noise, then we might conclude there is what? No life. Those who are real are alive. Now on your note page, new birth means new life. Three times in this opening section of chapter 5, John uses the expression born of God. Twice in verse 1 he says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been what? Born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves who has ever, who ha, whoever has been born of him. In verse 4, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this isn't the first time that we have heard this expression. Back in chapter 3, verse 9, John says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. In chapter 4, verse 7, Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And in, in, and he'll say this, this expression two more times in chapter 5, verse 18. It's a very effective word picture. Born of God. Birth. Birth. Everyone has been born at least once, right? Right? In fact, you know, we we should put that to the test. Is there anyone here today who has not been born? Raise your hand. No? No? Nobody? Okay. Well, then we pass that test. We have all been born once. The question that, that carries with it eternal implications, however, is have we been born a second time? Have we been born of God, not just to a mom and dad, but God. The first is a physical birth, obviously. The second is a spiritual birth. And so necessary is this second spiritual birth that Jesus will say in John chapter 3, verse 3, words that you are familiar with, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot what? He cannot see the kingdom of God. He will not know heaven. She will not know heaven unless she is born a second time. What it means to be born again, well, that's explained for us earlier in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Again, verses that you would know. But to all who did receive him, who received Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Born of God. And so the basis for anyone being called a child of God or a son of God or a daughter of God is that they have been born of God. That second birth. They've experienced that that second birth through faith in Jesus. Would that describe you this morning? Have you been born of God? Yeah? yeah, Scott, you, you yelled it out there. I'm going to give it one more shot. Have you been born of God? Yeah. Yes. All right. I don't have to get the monitor out and start listening. <laughs> new birth means new life. One is the cause. The other is the effect. One is the root, the new birth. The other is the fruit. 
a new life. One creates life and the other is the evidence that that life is real and that it is ongoing. And here in verses 1 through 5, John supplies us with the evidencing signs of genuine salvation, new life, real spiritual life. And they are the same signs that John has been setting before us from the very first day we stepped into his epistle. Using my opening illustration, John could easily say, listen, you can always monitor a professing Christian for breath and activity and movement. You can always monitor a professing Christian to see if they have life in three very specific ways. By what they believe, by how they behave, and by how they love. Does that sound familiar to you? It should. Anyone who is truly born of God is going to prove that they are really alive by by right belief, by right living, and by right loving. And you can see that with me there on your note page. I can know right now that I am spiritually alive, that I am real, really born of God and a child of his forever when my faith is in Jesus alone, the Jesus of the Bible, when observable love for God and others flows out of my life, and when I demonstrate active obedience to God's will. If those things are happening, if there's that movement, then I know I'm alive. I'm real. We have been over this ground so many times now that I I really don't feel like we need to spend a lot of time here today, which is good because that will free us up to think about something new that John introduces in verses 4 and 5 that I believe will be a tremendous encouragement to all of us today who are real. But let's look briefly at what these, again, at these three signs, just real quick. John writes in verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. In verse 5, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Therefore, the the, the non-negotiable, foundational, unchanging first evidence that proves that someone is spiritually alive is their faith in Jesus, right? Their belief in Jesus Christ, that he is the Messiah, that he is God's promised deliverer from sin and death and judgment. This very short abbreviated statement in verse one implies all that is true about Jesus from scripture, that he is the son of God, that he's the second person of the Trinity who came to earth sent by the Father, that he came on a rescue mission for you and me to die in our place and rise from the dead as victor over death and the grave and our sin. Amen and amen. Only the one who believes in the truth about Jesus as revealed in the Bible is born of God, is real. Are you real? Yeah? Are you real? Good, I'm going to have to go looking for that monitor again. You know, any teaching that says sinners, which, of course, is what everybody in the world is, any teaching that 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 sinners can be saved from an eternal hell apart from faith in Jesus is a false gospel. It's a deadly lie, is it not? You would boldly declare this morning that that you have appropriated the claims of Jesus into your life 
as delivered in the Bible, if you would do that, if you would say, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, then you have been born of God. You are the real deal. And it's good to know that. It's good to know that. But John doesn't stop there. Also in verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. The new birth brings people not only into a faith relationship with God, but also into a love relationship with him and a love relationship with others as well. John has hammered this truth to us over and over and again, twice in chapter 2, four times in chapter 3, five times in chapter 4, and now here again in chapter 5. That love for God and love for others is an evidence that we are real. Remember again that John's writing to Christians in, in the churches that he pastors, churches that have been split wide open by people who at one time made very sincere sounding claims to, to loving God and to loving Jesus. And they were claiming to be devoted members of that church family. And yet now those same persons feel no remorse or con, uh, for confusing or dividing the church. In fact, starting up their own church down the street, their brand new church with its new teaching. And John says in context, real Christians would never do such a thing. Because that's not loving God, and that is not loving others. One writer enlarges on this idea, saying, Where someone claims to be a Christian, but has no time for fellowship with others, who criticizes the church and writes it off, practicing an isolated devotion to God, do we not have to ask whether that person is deluded and whether God really does live in him or her? Where the life of God is at work, It sweetens bitterness, it melts hardness, and it multiplies love. Would you agree with that? Man, John would certainly agree with that. In fact, if you glance back up to verse 20 of chapter 4, which is where we were hanging out last week together, John gives the illogic of someone saying, I love God if they don't love others. Here's how he says it. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a what? He's a liar. That is strong words. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. It's easy to love God in the theoretical, isn't it? It's easy to love God with with just words. It is much more difficult, though, to love God by loving other people. Would you agree with that? That is more challenging. Are you, am I doing that? Are we loving God by loving each other? Inside these walls and outside of these walls. To love people, real Christians and and non-Christians, requires dealing with all of their annoyingness, right? Bearing with their failures, sympathizing with their particular circumstances and and giving uh, to, to their needs sacrificially. And that can be really hard to do. That's that's hard love. As the old saying goes, to dwell above with the saints I love. Oh, that will be glory to dwell below with the saints. I know <laughs> that's a different story, right? 
The love of which John writes is not mere emotion. It's not mere sentimental, gooey stuff. It is a desire to honor and please and obey God by loving those that he loves. Are you real in this arena? Are you? Am I? It's a sign, an evidence that we're born of God. And speaking of obeying God as we love others, this is the third evidence of uh, evidencing sign that John hits upon here. What we believe, how we love, and then how we, how we behave. Look at verses 2 and 3. By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and, and do what? And obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome, John says. A confirming proof, brothers and sisters, that we are real is sustained by loving obedience to what God has said in his word. Genuine saving faith in Jesus produces love. And one of the ways that love is demonstrated is by my obeying God. Obeying God. We will want to please and honor and delight the one that we love. That works in our relationships, in our marriages. We want to please the one that we love. One of the ways we please God is to obey his word. Obey in verse 2 is a present tense verb, by the way, indicating that this obedience is, is ongoing. It's all the time. It's the direction of our life. We are going to obey what God says in his word. Are we going to do it with perfection? No, we can't do that because we still have that old sin nature hanging on. But our desire is to obey him. Ongoing. Keep in verse 3, that's a word that means to watch over or, or to guard. And so if we are real, we look at God's commandments as if they are a precious treasure that is to be honored and to be protected. So obey is the action and keep is the heart attitude behind our obedience. And John lets us know this is not legalistic. It's not something we do grudgingly or you got to twist my arm. Now he says it is loving obedience that comes from a willing, desiring heart, making God's commandments not burdensome, not a heavy load to have to carry. What does that look like? Uh, obeying God's commandments and they're not burdensome. What would that look like? Well, the writer of Psalm 119 is in exactly the place that John would have us to be when he repeatedly expresses his, his joy in God's commandments. Just, just listen for a moment. Here's what the writer says. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. Could you say that today, brother, sister? That you rejoice in the commandments of God? Verse 16, I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Do you delight in God's commandments? Verse 24, your statutes are my delight. They are my counselors. Verse 97, oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Verse 103, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. 
the psalmist is telling us without telling us that anyone who genuinely loves God and the Lord Jesus is going to want to honor them with their obedience. Real love looks for ways to please the object that is loved. And active obedience is one of those ways. That's what real Christians do. They obey their God. Amen? Yeah. So John lays it out pretty succinctly for us. If you claim to be a Christian, if you're going to wear that name, then evidence it with these impossible-to-miss proofs. Your faith will be in the Jesus of the Bible. Your love for God and others will be tangible and observable. And your obedience to God's commands will be consistent and will define your moral choices consistently. We can look in your life, you can look in my life and know whether we're real or not. Now, do you remember, this is going back, I don't know, a couple of months, I'm guessing, to the time when I illustrated all of this using the illustration of a wannabe PCT hiker. Were you here that morning when, when I went in this direction? If not, it's fresh for you, and, 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 and I'm going to go there again. What if you had a person who claimed to be a PCT hiker? That's how they saw themselves. It's how they introduced themselves. Hi, I'm a PCT hiker. They claimed that title for themselves. They bought all the best gear, the clothes, the packs, the shoes. They bought all the most accurate maps and trail guides and compasses. And they hung out with other PCT hikers. Talking about hiking. Talking about navigation and weather and camping skills and all the things that, that PCT hikers talk about. And to anybody looking on, they are a PCT hiker. In fact, they're the PCT hiker poster child well then the day comes when everyone gathers at the trailhead on the mexican border ready for that long trek north up to canada and there's there's this self-proclaimed pct hiker poster child there with everybody else but when everybody else sets off this person doesn't go north on the pct trail they turn east and head for arizona Walking off into the desert, no trails, no signs, no map, blowing off all the other PCTers who are saying, hey, you're going the wrong way. They don't listen. They don't look back. But they said they're a PCTer. No, no, no. You're not a PCT hiker unless you are actually hiking what? The Pacific Coast Trail, right? You gotta be hiking that trail. You believe the core PCT hiking doctrines. And you care for the welfare of the other PCT hikers that you are with. And you stay on the trail determined to hike in the right direction as defined by the guidebooks and the signs. And if you don't do that, man, you're not a PCT hiker no matter what you say. No matter what you claim to be, you're not. And so John is saying the same thing here. Anyone can claim to be a Christian. But you're only a real Christian when you believe in the Jesus of the Bible. Your love for God and others is more than just words. 
And your obedience to God's book and His will is consistently shaping your choices in your life. Would you agree with that? Are you real? Are you real? Well, what do you say to the person who who insists that they're a Christian, but they're they're spiritually heading for Arizona? Not that I have anything with against Arizona, right? Okay, we're not saying that anything about that. You following my illustration, right? You're still with me. They're falsely assured of their salvation. What do you say to them? Well, brothers and sisters, if we love that person who's claiming to be a Christian, but none of the proofs are are falling out of their life, we tell them honestly what the signs of real spiritual life are, right? If we love them. Because what is the eternal consequence for the person who thinks they're a Christian, but finds out too late that they are not? What is the consequence of that? It is hell. It is hell. Terrible, never-ending wake-up call declaring that, that you never were born of God. Because new birth means new life, doesn't it? And you never evidenced that. But you discover it too late. Now having said all of that, John closes out this opening section of chapter 5 by introducing us to something truly wonderful that I desire to end today with. Sending you out into your week, contemplating and praising God for it. If you flip your note page over, John is going to say in verses 4 and 5 that real Christians are what? They are overcomers. Verses 4 and 5. Three times he's going to say that. Now, brothers and sisters, as Christians, we are called by many different names in the scriptures, including these. Believers, children of God, children of light, children of promise, sons of the day, sons of the kingdom, friends of Jesus, brethren, sheep, saints, holy ones, soldiers, witnesses, stewards, fellow citizens, lights in the world, the elect, the chosen, the called, ambassadors of Christ, heirs, branches in the vine, members of the body of Christ, living stones, the beloved of God, followers of Christ, sons of Abraham, disciples, letters of Christ, servants of Christ, the godly, the people of God, a royal priesthood, the salt of the earth, vessels for honor, the righteous, aliens and strangers, and members of God's household. That's you, according to Scripture, when you're real. That's you. Like a multifaceted diamond, each of these names reveals something about the character and the blessing and the privileges that are ours because our faith is in Jesus. John reveals now yet another title, another name for you. It is Overcomer. Overcomer of the world. Verses 4 and 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Did you know you're an overcomer? If you're real, did you know that? We do now. (laughs) The Holy Spirit through John is saying that real Christians are victors. 
They are winners. They are conquerors. In fact, that word overcomes here in these two verses is the Greek word nikao. Nike. That's the word. Nike. Like the shoe company. Victory. Win. Conquer. Verse verse 4 literally reads, This is the Nike that has niked the world. Our faith. Is that cool? It's one of John's favorite terms. 24 of the 28 times you find this word in your New Testament, it comes from John. And John says three times that Christians have overcome the world. Now that term world is hardly a new word for us. We've come on to it 13 times before in our study of the letter. And by it, John means the invisible spiritual system of evil, which, which is hostile to God and it's ruled by Satan. That's the world. In verse 19 of chapter 5, John's going to tell us that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The world is an entire value system, a Satan-energized plan and program that is opposed to God. It is humanity in subconscious rebellion against God. The world is humanity seeking meaning apart from God. It is mankind in all of its despairing and lonely selfishness pursuing carnal ambitions, pride and greed and position and power and material possessions. A life without the true God to serve and love and obey. It's what John calls the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life back in chapter 2. But here's what Jesus said to all of that on the night before the cross. A verse that you know very, very well. When Satan and his God-hating world system thought that victory was theirs, that Jesus was going to be dead, here's what Jesus says. Night before the cross, maybe six hours away from hanging on a cross, Jesus says, John 16, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have what? I have overcome the world. Jesus uses the word Nike right here to speak of his victory over Satan and the world. And it is his victory, his triumph by the cross and by the resurrection that forms the basis for the bold declaration that you and I are also overcomers in this world because of our faith. In Jesus. Verse 4. Again, what does it say? Our faith overcomes. Because our faith is in the overcomer. We conquer the world in the sense that we overcome its empty life, its its worship of self, idolatry of, of material things, fear of death, the dread of what lies beyond the grave. Faith in Jesus is the way that we overcome. We are born of God and that new birth results in a new life. And this new life is is the complete opposite of the world. And it helps us to overcome the world. But the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul takes all this even one step further. In Romans chapter 8, Paul asks, If the world with all of its trouble, all of its hardships, persecution, hunger, poverty, danger, even death for Jesus' sake, can any of that overcome Can any of that overtake a real Christian? 
Paul asks that question in Romans 8. You know what his answer is? It's Romans 8.37. No. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Amen and amen. More than conquerors. Maybe your version says overwhelmingly conquer. Paul takes the word Nike and he intensifies it. Hooper Nikeo. We would say hyper Nike or super Nike or super overcomer. Which speaks of being absolutely, completely victorious. No, in all these things we are super overcomers through him who what? Loved us. Brothers and sisters, in Jesus, and because of our faith in Jesus, we are invincible. We are unconquerable in this world by this world. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Not because of anything we do, but because everything that Jesus has already done. Yes? Yes. As if that were not enough, Because of his delight in us as overcomers, Jesus has promised to pour out rich blessings on us, on all who overcome through him. And these promises are found in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 in Jesus' letters to the seven churches. You may want to take your Bible and turn there. Um, You've got all of the, the information right there on your note page. It's all in red, so I will call your attention to that. I had not until recently seen the connection between Romans chapter 8 verse 37 and these these two chapters in Revelation. Now I can't think of one without thinking about the other. Now because the seven churches represent Jesus' church in any period from the first century on, these promises are to all believers who are real. These promises that we're going to take a look at quickly. These are, these, are, these are promises given to all overcomers who by faith in Jesus overcome the world. There are 14 special gifts that Jesus promises to real Christians. On your note page, without reading all the details, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, Jesus promises, To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. The tree of life, that symbolizes eternal life. The paradise of God, that is heaven. And so Jesus promises all overcomers will live forever in heaven. Amen? Yeah. In Revelation 2 verse 11, Jesus promises that the second death has no power over the overcomer. The second death is eternal punishment in hell, according to Revelation 20 verse 14. But overcomers have eternal life in Jesus. They will never experience the second death. Amen? In 2.17, overcomers eat the hidden manna, symbolic of God's provision for all believers. God's going to meet all our needs in heaven forever. And Jesus promises to give them the white stone. That means that, 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 that those who believe get admission into the victorious celebration that is going to be in heaven when Jesus reigns supreme. Are you an overcomer? You're invited to that celebration. In fact, Jesus has promised you a white stone, your entrance, your admittance to that eternal victory celebration in heaven. 
In chapter 2, verses 26 to 28, three more promises. Overcomers are granted authority to assist Jesus in ruling his kingdom. And more than that, he promises them the morning star. Who's the morning star? It's Jesus himself, Revelation 22, 16. And this is his promise that all believers will experience Jesus in all of his fullness for all of eternity. I can't wait. Can you? In chapter 3, verse 5, three more promises. The overcomer says Jesus is going to be clothed in white garments, clothed in Jesus' righteousness. They're promised eternal security as Jesus says that overcomers' names will never be erased from the book of life. Oh, man, never. And far from erasing their names, the promise is also in this section that he will confess our name to God the Father and to all of the angels of heaven, thus affirming that we belong to Jesus. In chapter 3, verse 12, four more promises in rapid succession. Everyone who is an overcomer is made a pillar in Jesus' church, which is his dwelling, inferring honor and permanence. And they're going to have God's name written on them and Jesus' name written on their person. When you are in heaven one day, brother, sister, and Jesus, you're going to have God's name on you. You're going to have Jesus' name on you. And that is indisputable proof of divine ownership. Overcomers are going to be owned by God. And they'll have another name, the new Jerusalem, written upon them as well, proving that their citizenship really is in heaven. Are you an overcomer? Yeah? And in Revelation chapter 3, verse 21, these words. To the one who overcomes, who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. All overcomers will reign victoriously with me forever, Jesus says. His promise, and he never, ever breaks a promise. Amen? Amen? Only super overcomers receive these promises. Only those who have been born of God and are living out his new life in them through faith in Jesus receive these promises. Only the real receive these promises. Are you real? Are you real? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, and Holy Spirit, it is good to publicly affirm and declare with a loud voice that we are real. But not because of anything that we have done, but because of everything you've done for us. Our faith is in Jesus alone. We desire to love you and to love others. We don't do that perfectly. We confess that to you. We wish we did that better, but it is our desire. And Lord, we seek to obey you. We seek to, to, to live within the boundaries of your word. And again, we don't do that perfectly. We'd love to do it better. But we are real today. And we walk out of the doors today of this building as super overcomers. It's one of our names What do we say to such kindness from you? All the promises that belong to us because this is what we are. For 
you who might be with us this morning and, and you're still on the bubble with regards to who Jesus is going to be in your life, look carefully at how much God loves you to do these things for you, to make heaven possible for you, to, to make all of these promises yours through Jesus. If we could help you in your journey towards discovering how much you are loved, we would, we would be delighted to do that. Just pull someone aside that you might know in this room. Come to me. Let's talk. Let's talk. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for these moments in your word. We leave this place as super overcomers. May we bring great glory and honor to you as we do so. In Jesus' great name. And all God's people said, Amen, amen and Amen.